Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to Newberry Tart. We are here today with Jason Reynolds, who has won a billion awards, well-deserved, um, in addition to the Newberry honor for this past year called A Long Way Down. Hello, Jason. Thanks for being with us. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. I am dying to ask you this because I just saw it on Twitter. Uh-oh. So on uh, Maya Angelou's birthday, you tweeted about her and about what an inspiration she has been for you. Um, you also said that you used to call her office and send her your poems. Yeah. And I was so curious if you ever heard back from her. No, you know, it's funny. I, I was, uh, was, it's interesting back in the day. I, so I was, I was dating somebody when I was a teenager and her parents worked in television and, uh, we were talking about something, and she said, "You know, Jason, you're not you're, you're working too hard. You're complicating sort of the process of of networking. This is before social media. This is before sort of the internet was what the internet became, right? And has become." And I was like, "What do you mean?" She was like, "You know, everybody's just everyone's listed, right? You should just look in the phone book and just call your heroes and see what happens." And so I looked in the phone book, and, and there she was. Uh, and it wasn't her home address; it was her work her work office. I think at the time she was working at. Uh, I want to say Winston-Salem. Yeah, because I think she was in North Carolina. Yeah, so I think she was at Winston-Salem, the university. And, you know, I'm a, t- I'm a teenager, so I don't know that Maya Angelou's probably never actually there, right? She's a faculty, right? But she's probably never actually there. And so I started to call her office all the time. And no one ever answered, <laughs> but I was just certain that eventually someone would pick up the phone, even if it was an assistant, just somebody to pick up the phone. But no one ever answered, and then I would just send sort of poems to her mailing address to, the, to her office. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one ever responded, though. I never got a reply. I never got a reply. I did see her, though, shortly after, and I wanted to ask her about it, but I couldn't get close enough to get to her because uh, they whisked her away, you know what I mean? But it was amazing. I look back with it there, and I'm, and I'm grateful to have experienced what it feels like to have... Like I like that, that, that sort of, like, there's an element to going for the things you want to go for. I think, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. You got to shoot your shot. Mm-hmm. And I, and I want kids to know that today, right? It's like, it's okay. I mean, you, the worst that can happen is you get a no mm-hmm. or, or a non-response, right? Mm-hmm. But ask. <laughs> we feel a lot that way ourselves, actually, because when we started this podcast, we're like, yeah, we'll review all the books, but like maybe we'll talk to an author or two, but everybody's just like, yeah, sure. And I think also, I think us being moms of small kids, too, we get, we're like, we just don't think of there being real world stuff for us a lot of times, you know, we're like, we're like just covered in goo and watching Dora. You know? On the upside, we're too tired to care if it's weird to call somebody. That's true. Exactly. That's true. Exactly. It's like, look, I've got a two-year-old on my hip. Yeah. You want to do it or not? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you in or are you out? Because right? like, I got to feed my kid right now. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. No. But everybody's like, yeah, I'm in. Okay. Sure. I mean, yeah. and, and you guys are hitting the sweet spot. I think at the end of the day, right now is a good time to be a podcaster because I think people take podcasts seriously in a way that they didn't five years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? So now we see it as a formidable media. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people are more, you know, more apt to do it. You know, I think if you'd ask, you know, I listen to, to other people who've done, done podcasting for the last, I don't know, 10 years, right? And you hear them talk about how hard it was because everyone's like, what is it? Like what, what's going on? What is we is doing? It the radio? Is it the radio? Right? Like, it's, like, it's not the radio. Why are we in your? Why are we in this little like box of a room? Right? Like, <laughs> like what's happening? Right? You know. And, and I think now people understand what podcasts are. Yeah. We, we've all caught up. You know. Yeah. Well, it's been really fun for us. We mostly like started it as a way to just get together and geek out about books That's and awesome. have a drink, which brings me to my next very frivolous point. Yeah. Um, when we review books, we usually pair it with a cocktail. Yeah. 
punny or an author's favorite drink. So we haven't reviewed a long way down yet. We wondered if you have a favorite drink. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, my favorite drink, if I had to pick any drink, is probably um, Basil Hayden. But I don't drink it a lot anymore just because... I travel too much, and the sugar is terrible for you. I try to, that's what happens when you travel. When you like every little bit counts, and you're like, I gotta take care of myself. So now, I pretty much drink um, if I can find it as a gin, and it's by a company called Bar Hill. It's Bar Hill Tomcat Tomcat Gin, which is a brown gin. They distill it in a barrel like they do whiskey, and uh, you put a little lemon in there, lemon slice or a lime slice, and you drink it on the rocks, and it tastes a little bit like uh, a really strong. Iced tea. It's amazing. Oh. It's amazing. All right, I'm looking forward to that. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And I think that would be the book. I mean, that would be the drink I would pair with something like Long Way Down, right? This idea that it's something that isn't is what it isn't, right? It's not what you think it is because most people think of gin as a clear, mm-hmm. sort of transparent liquor, you know. Uh, but this is brown um, due to a distillation process, right? It's been made this way due to um, a different kind of processing. And I think that's what Long Way Down is all about, right? Yeah. I was really struck by Long Way Down, like like a lot of people, but I was really struck by how you were able to create a narrative with the poems. Mm. And um, I know we'll talk about that more in a minute, but I was curious about how much input you had in the visual presentation of the book, mm. um, the backgrounds. You're right, that is beautiful. Yeah. yeah, all of that stuff, like the scratchy background and all of that, that wasn't really me, you know. Um, we have incredible designers who, I have to give my okay on everything, but we have designers who I've trusted, and they've been working with me for for years now, and they've the same people who do the book covers and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, they, they design all that stuff too. And I just trust them, you know. I, they 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 haven't let me down yet. And so when they showed me that, when they told me they wanted to do the scratchy background at first, I was like, ah, I don't want anything to detract, right? I don't want anything to pull away from, or pull the poem sort of away from the people. I don't want anything to get in the way of the words because every word is so important, and I don't want anything to get lost. But they were able to do it in a way that felt sort of raw and gritty and complimentary, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is what I really wanted. In terms of the words on the page, that was on me. I mean, that's part of my own sort of process and format when it comes to language and storytelling, and, and it was cool. So like the placement on yeah. the page? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that was, was me. Yeah. Um, and there was some, uh, with, with some collaboration with my editor who was like, well, maybe we should move it a little further over. Maybe we should bump it to the next page. Like I may have it spaced five lines down and she may say, let's just take it 10 lines down and jump the page, right? Or let's move this whole column two more tabs over to create a little more space uh, on the page. Things that I couldn't see from, because you know, when I'm looking at a laptop, I'm looking at sort of my screen, but my screen is not at the trim size of a book. And so what she's looking at is like, okay, on your screen you see this, but in my screen I see that we could go a little further, right? Mm-hmm. That you're actually, you know, far from the margin and you don't know that because you can't see it on your on your laptop screen, yeah. you know? Yeah. Is the editing process in general a lot more intensive because it's poetry than, than with a novel? Only because of me, not because of my editor. My editor was done a long time ago, and then I edited it 20 more times. You know, I was like, ah, we got to do it again. And she's like, I think it's good. Nope, we have to do it again. We have to do it again. We have to do it again. Because I understood uh, that this is about sort of trimming the fat as much as you can, and it's about making sure that whatever I'm going to put out into the world especially in verse like this, it needs to be as strong as possible. One, because I have too many friends that are poets 
and who would crush me <laughs> for for being lazy and for not being diligent about the word. And so and so my editor, who mostly edits prose, um, uh, the story was solid, right? And the word, everything was sort of lined up and were good. And for me, it was like, yes, all of this is good. Yes, this could work, right? But this isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And I need as close to perfection as possible because there are so few words. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a grueling process for me. It was annoying for my editor. Um, but it is what it is. You know, we had to do what we had to do. Did you create the story in a different format or just as notes and then write the poems kind of as a beat by beat it was following a, it, an outline? It, yeah, it was originally written in vignette. So I originally wrote it all in prose, just like little little bursts of prose. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to my agent. And, um, it was a passion project. I knew that my whole thing was they're not going to publish it. It was kind of like I'm going to just do my thing because sometimes it's how you have to do it. It's like we work in a business, but we got into it for the love of writing, and there are moments where you have to do your work for you. There are moments where you have to kind of steal away and steal back that which you love. Right? This belongs to me. Um, before it's a business, before it's awards and handshakes and all of the other, all the, the, the hullabaloo that has come along with it, this is, this is sort of my anchor. This is, this is and my pillow, right? And it's important that, I, that I, you sometimes wall that off. Um, and so I was writing this as just sort of my own little passion project thing that I was kind of doing my thing and exercising a muscle. And I sent it to my agent, um, and it took her six months to read it, you know, because she also didn't think it was going to be anything. It's kind of like, yeah, impossible, right? Like, there's no way you can make this happen. I gave her the pitch, and she was like, you know, sort of dismissive about it. She's like, yo, this is a little too ambitious. Uh, she read it six months later. And was like, yo, I really love this. But I think uh, story, I think it, it needs to move at a faster clip. And you should try the verse, right? You've been, I mean, that's like, yeah, that was my original discipline, right? I, I was trained in poetry. And so she said, you should go back to your first love and see what happens. I think it could work for this particular story. And then I went back and rewrote the whole book. But I had the sort of, right, it was there. I had the meat of it all. Mm-hmm. I just had to go through and sort of um, and distill it. Mm-hmm. And I had to rework some of the things that don't work in verse that work in prose. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Add things that work in verse that don't work in prose. And mm-hmm. uh, fool around in a page a little differently, which I always love, love to do if you can. I think, I think as, as writers who, you know, I love my friends and my colleagues, and a lot of us are doing really great work. I like to challenge them, though, and push them to. Remember that this is a creative art form. It's your, it's your responsibility to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. Every book should feel impossible. Every book is a surprise. Mm-hmm. You, know, you put things out and you don't expect anybody to read it. Even now, people are always like, you still don't think? And it's like, oh, yeah. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to fall. Mm-hmm. This, is an, this is a fickle industry. It's feast of famine. Things move on. Mm-hmm. right? Waves and tides turn. And I'm fully aware of that. So every time something that you make, you put out into the world and the world accepts it, Oh, it's a big deal. Every time it's a big yeah. deal, you know. So, because you're just a few years younger than we are, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and you were talking about how growing up, part of the reason you didn't read is because there weren't really any books for you that you could see yourself in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a suburban white girl, so there was no lack of, of books for me to read, and I was a voracious reader, but you are 100% correct that there was no book that existed that would have been a window for me to see into your life, right. like at all. Um, and so listening to you talk in your various interviews about how your books sort of 
fill that hole and help bridge a gap towards literacy for people who are underserved in that way. I was wondering if you think about like the secondary audience, which would be people like me who need the, the books that foster empathy, like instead of the books that are needed to help foster literacy in the communities, like the ones that you grew up in. Yeah. In our communities, it was more like we're totally lacking the books that would help us be understanding. Yeah, I think, I definitely think about it a lot. I used to say, when I was the greatest came out some years back, I used to say, and I still believe this, that I'm trying to write books that, if you are a kid growing up in this kind of environment, in this kind of community, you feel less ashamed. And if you are a kid who is not growing up in this environment, you feel less afraid. And I still, that's still sort of my, my mantra in terms of the way that I approach the books. I think, but even more so than that, I think there's, there is the creation of empathy, but there's also the creation of connectivity. I think that because I've been able to travel the world and talk to kids from around the planet, it's interesting because they all laugh at the same jokes and they all f have the same emotions. They all want the same things and fear the same things for the most part, right? The details are all different, but, but at the core, everything is pretty much the same. And so I also th think that these books are kind of, it's like a human experiment. It's like I, you write something that is so specific, but so there may be some white suburban kid who may not be able to connect to some of the details or maybe some of the language or, or some of the family dynamics, but can connect to being afraid and can connect to having a desire to do something that they don't always feel like they can do or the connection to uncertainty and insecurity. Um, and I think that's sort of the beauty of some of this stuff. I, you know, Christopher Myers, one of my dear friends, he, he said that when he first put out the picture book Black Cat, he said the publishers had a hard time because the publisher wanted him to write, he couldn't, they didn't want him to write about the black cat in Harlem, which is what the book is about, a black cat walking through Harlem. They wanted him to write about the black cat walking through sort of uh, at him, you know, this sort of arbitrary neighborhood, just just sort of quote unquote neighborhood, um, because they felt like it would be more more broad and more far reaching. But he fought back against it, and so what he did was he fought and fought, and then he wrote about Harlem as he planned to, and the book came out, and it obviously did really well. Um, but he started getting fan mail from all over the world, and his fan mail would be projects from kids. And it'd be like Black Cat in Nepal, Black Cat in Thailand, Black Cat in Auckland, right? Because the kids get it. Yes, and the specificity, right? You you being specific allows kids to be specific. It's not this weird idea that if you're not specific, kids will insert themselves. It's like, no, if you are specific, kids will then sort of insert themselves, right? They'll insert their own context and surroundings into the story because that's what they have to play with, right? And I, and I think there's something true to that. There's something really, you know what I mean? And that's what I that's what I try to do in all the books. Be as specific as possible uh, and then allow you to connect to a story that you may not know about, allow you to sort of live in the space that you may not know about, but then allow you to sort of paint your own bedroom, paint your own into this into this house, right? Paint your own classroom into this school. Uh, and I think there's a possibility of doing so if you're unafraid and if you trust young people and their ability to think critically. Mm -hmm. That's actually something I've really been enjoying about your books in general is how like there are some other books where there'll be say a shooting, right? mm -hmm. but the book is about the shooting and it's easy to sort of dissociate from that and say, well, that would never happen here, you know, so that's not really me, yeah. but your books focus more on like the inner life of your characters yeah. and I think that's a lot more relatable. Yeah, I think it's also a lot more honest, yeah. right? There's, there's no such thing as, um, 
but our lives aren't issue driven, right? Our lives are typically driven by the lives around us, right? Like human beings invest most in human beings. We don't invest in issues. That's not the way it works. When we think about all the issues that are going on right now, right, like Parkland or whatever whatever issue we can bring, any ism you want to talk about, we're not thinking about the ism. We're thinking about the people affected by it. That is humanity. That's the way that we work. Um, and I think that's the way I approach the story. It's not about, like, oh, there's a shooting or, you know, oh, my mom's dead or, oh, you know, my dad's dead in Patina or, you know, my mom's dead in Sunday, whatever it is, right, any of the, the things that happen in young people's lives. It was more about, like, no, yes, that is a thing. But what has that thing done to affect my life and the lives around me? Mm-hmm. Um, how could I use this to better understand and explain who it is that I am? And for me as a writer, how can I use this to help young people see themselves and understand that somebody sees them as whole, young but whole, mm-hmm. and to help the adults around them um, stop mislabeling young people? Because the moment that you slap a label on a kid that you disagree with or that makes you uncomfortable, you no longer have to see that child as a child. Mm-hmm. And instead, help us to ask certain questions like, what's the matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, if for my part, I grew up kind of in pretty <clears throat> rural South Carolina. And so reading your books, like a long way down, um, and The Greatest, I had a different relation to violence. Yeah. Like there was a different violence. and But it hits that same note of like, you don't really know what your classmates are up to or what's going on around you. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was really struck by that. Mm. Um, and we all like, we all have, we all contain worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Like most of these books are taken from a very small sliver of my life, a small sliver. But all of us could do that if we were to think about our lives mm-hmm. from a macro level, and you take sort of you know, a few months of your 16th year. That's 10 books, <laughs> right? Like a, a few months. <laughs> exactly, yeah, you think, but you think about that, right? Yeah. Like it's interesting yeah. to, to, to think about that. Is it weird for you to be kind of now like this like rising rock star of the kid lit world? Mm, it's weird on some days, but you never, you never see yourself the way other people see you, right? Because I live in this body, and I, 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 no one's with me when I'm banging my head against the desk. No one's with me when I'm in the airports alone, or when I'm in when I check into the like last night, check into the hotel at two thirty in the morning, mm. wake up at seven because you got to get some work done. No one's there when I'm doubting myself when I write my editor's letters that say I'm not sure I can do it anymore. I don't know if I have any more in me. I don't know if I can get this right or call my agent and she has to talk me down. No one's there for all of that, right? So that gets, it, that, it doesn't necessarily get to me as much because I get to be me all the time. And I know, I know the messiness that is my life and that is my mind. Um, and I've been, and I'm honest about that. I don't, you know, for me, it's like, look, I talk to my therapist every day, right? Because if I don't, Nobody gets any books. Nobody gets any books if I don't talk to her mm-hmm. every day. You know, I got to call her wherever I am. We, I text her, whatever. You know, when she don't hear from me in two days, she checks in. You all right? Everything cool? What's going on? Right? And I think um, it's those kind of things keep me grounded. And I got a mother that also reminds me that, you know, yeah, I ain't nothing. Tells me that all the time. <laughs> you, ain't no, you ain't nobody, right? Nobody, right? You're no one. 
You know, in the moment that you think you're someone, you'll think you're someone more important than the next. Remember that you as nobody is all the nobodies. Making make you no difference. That what you do for a living is not changed. It should not change your integrity or your character. You come back to your neighborhood. You talk to these kids the way you talked to them before you left. You make sure that you see everybody as a human being the way you saw them before anybody knew your name. You make sure that you show up to the events when sometimes you got to stretch a little extra. Right? You do the things that are necessary because you are who you are, and this can't change you. Right? My mom is sort of heavy on that. You know, ten toes down, a hundred percent. We don't play that in my family. And so when I think about the awards and the accolades, I see it as a mission, it's a charge. It isn't a pat on the back, it isn't a hand clap, it isn't a, a job well done. It's that you have a responsibility. You got a responsibility. It's, it's, it's a different kind of, it's, it's the most privileged burden, right? Because what it says is, look, we're telling you that we're going to slap this label on you or we're going to put these seals on your books, because we, not because we think you've done something, but because we think you can do something. You know, that's what Deb Taylor and the whole Coretta Scott King committee back in the day when they gave me the step toe, that's what it was about. Them saying, look, kids, you're going to slip through the cracks unless we force them to take to take a look at you. But once we force them to put eyes on you, you better show up. And that's the way I carry it. That's the way I think about it. Where were you when you got the call for the Newberry? <laughs> You want an honest answer? Mm-hmm. I was in a bathroom. <laughs> I was in a I was in a grimy hotel. I can't remember where what city or state I was. Some small town, I think. And I was in a bathroom, trying to get it together. It was, it was a morning. It was the morning. It was early in the morning. And I'm sitting there, and they call, and they say this is the Newberry Committee. And and honestly, originally I thought they were calling about Patina. Yeah. I was actually, you know. I was actually hoping they were calling about Patina, honestly, to, to be completely candid with you. I, though I love Long Way Down, I think um, Patina might be one of the best books I've ever written in my own mind, right? Like for me, Boy in a Black Suit, As Brave As You, and Patina are the greatest books I've, that I have, the best written books I have. But they're the books that people say have a little more heart or a quiet novel, so they don't get all the fuss, you know? Um, and so I was hoping, I was like, oh, they're going to call for Patina, that's crazy, right? I'm ready to like celebrate Patina. Um, and then they said it was from a long way down, and I was a little confused because I didn't know that the Newberry. I thought it was. I thought it. I thought it uh, read a little up, and um, but you know, it's like, uh, what do you say? But okay, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I'm not the most excitable person. I feel so bad for the for the awards committees. Every year, you know, I'm for, I've been really fortunate to get a call every year, and and I always feel so badly because I'm such a um, subdued person all the time, and so I'm. like, they're like, ah, oh, they're screaming, right? And I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, sounds good. As I'm in the bathroom, like, right? <clears throat> it's like, well, talk to y'all later. See, see you in New Orleans, right? And they're like, are you happy? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. I'm so sorry, but I am happy. I just, this is who I am, my personality. I've never been that kind of person. Yeah. And then, of course, everybody called my, my editor, my agents. Everybody's like, oh, they're screaming, but they know me. So they're like, we know, all right. But, <laughs> but we're all happy for you, you know. Um, but it was cool. It's one of those things that I don't even know if it still has sort of set in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's weird. The Newberry's one of those things where I, intellectually, I know that it's the highest award in our category. But I don't feel nothing yet. And I don't think I've, like, maybe when I get there in June, I don't feel like I have that I had that or that I have in my 
career. I mean, it's it's a it's rare air, right? Like very few people are awarded this an honor or a medal. I mean, it's a very rare thing, and I don't know if I've grasped the magnitude of it yet. Uh, but I will at some point, and it'll be awesome. But at the moment, I'm just kind of like, I got work to do. I just got work to do. I, I, awards, it's, it's, I, I'll say something I've never told anybody. I, they're all sitting on my couch in boxes, all of them. National Book Award medal is like in a corner. The Kirkus Award is like, in the, they're all like just in boxes stacked up on the couch. Because I don't know what one is supposed to do with them. Like, what what exactly is supposed to happen now? Do I do I put them on my wall to remind me that I'm never going to be able to reach this again, right? To, to talk me out of doing the work that I need to be doing? Where exactly am I supposed to put the shrine to myself? Uh, you know, yeah, and so, and so yeah. I just kind of keep them tucked away. They're all in boxes stacked up on the couch in my back room where I never have to go. Where the trash can is, that's where, I, that's where I, I mean, that's where it all is. And it's not because I'm not grateful for them. It's that I'm only grateful for them if they create opportunity for these books to become more widespread. That's it. That's all I really care about. Put these books in the hands of these kids, cool. That's it. You don't even have to give me an actual physical award. You can put the sticker on the book and spread them out, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't need no plaques and medals and all that. For what? I got it. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, but that doesn't mean look, and, and I know that you know some people are like, no, nah, man, people fight for this, they want this their whole lives, and I get it. And I, I've also wanted, all of us want to be recognized for the work that we do. Trust me, there's nothing I want more than the respect of my peers and the people who support me and these librarians and teachers. Trust me, I, I work very hard for that. I am not above that. I work very, very hard for the respect of the people that I respect. Um, but I also just see the awards as functional, right? They aren't. They're functional things, right? These are supposed to be used to further the mission, to further the mission, right? Not to further the madness. And I think if I put them on the wall, uh, the madness will be compounded. <laughs> it also seems like that would be a lot of pressure, having them staring at you every day. Yeah, it's too much. And, and waking at you. <laughs> and my friends come over and they're like, oh, look, here's all of, like, what you, and, and I'm a person who fights his ego, right? Like, we all have to sort of work. That's something that all of us have to actively work against. That's not helpful. For me, I'm I'm such a mom. I'm thinking of like, oh, you could get the, you could get like, you could get some nice little boxes for them, and then have them so you could come, you know, bring it out and look at it if yeah. you wanted to, and then you could have it, you know. I never thought about what happens what to the physical do? medals, like what, do you, what do? you do with them, do you do? or the, you know, the statues, the trophies. I never thought about that. What do you do? I thought about taking them all to my mom's house and being like, here, you can have all of them. Like you can do whatever you want with them. Yeah. Um, but there are moments. Mm -hmm. Where you sort of open the box, right? And you're just like, whoa. Right? There are moments where I go in there and like when my friends come over, people who haven't seen me in a while, they're like, yo, can I see what the National Book Award Medal looks like? Or can I see what a Coretta Scott King plaque looks like, mm -hmm. right? And you go and you pull them out. And, and now as time passes, it gets a little more um, romantic, right? And you're like, oh, this is the Coretta Scott King for All American Boys, right? And you're like, this is a, a pinnacle moment in my life, right? This book changed my life. You know, or this is, I mean, the Kirkus Award for As Brave As You, right? Which also financially changed my life forever mm -hmm. because that prize is a, such a big prize, right? And, and to show that trophy and say, this is, this was, um, this was freedom for me in a very real way. 
So I keep them, right? So Because those moments come when you're like, man, this is wild. Sometimes I put the metal on. My, you know, or my friends put the metal on, right? And, you know, and, it's, right yeah, and it's cool. Um, but that needs to be an option, not a requirement. Yeah. yeah. I just have boxes of like photo albums, but here's my box of beautiful medals and awards. <laughs> well, when we were talking to Lois Lowry, she accidentally threw hers away. Did she accidentally donated it in a box of old stuff in her garage? No. But, but that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. Like yeah. you, people don't know that a lot and I think a lot of us are this way, where it's like, here's a reminder of something that I've done that is a sort of this accomplishment. And you get it. The, the best part about it is receiving it. But when you get home, mm-hmm. it's like, what now? Right? <laughs> I think Jackie Woodson has all hers. She has an office. And so I think all of hers are on the wall in her mm-hmm. office because it's a space that she can like close the door and not go to. Right? Yeah. You know? And, and that's yeah. like, that's that room, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe when I buy a house, I'm trying to buy a house now. So maybe when I buy a house, I'll have a library or something. Yeah. And it's like, look, I'll put all that on the wall. And that'll be there and it'll live in that space and I'll keep the door closed and you know (laughs) that's where the babies live Sunny um is me sort of another reinvention right it's like a reinvention of style my style and a reinvention of voice uh Sunny is a strange kid I want to just write about the weirdos I think I think you know you know the funny thing about black kids since that's primarily what I write about, who I write about, is that black kids are often stereotyped as the, not just, like we think about the stereotypes of black children and we think about like, oh, he's tough and aggressive and blah, 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 right? Rap music. What we never think about is that there's other stereotype that is that the black kid in the class is always the coolest kid in the class. Coolest kid in the school, right? It's like, always. And it's just not true. <laughs> it's just not true, and you know. And so I wanted to write about a black kid who was left of center and and not so cool and kind of strange and a misfit and and but charming, right? And owning his weirdness, owning his awkwardness and his sort of otherness, and being like, "Well, this is who it is. I'm a space cadet, and I'm cool with it." And everybody loves me for that. And so that's Sunny's story, and there's a reason why he is this way, and we learn sort of all of that about him, and it's all written in. Diary entries. Uh, so it's all like these letters to himself. And you get to really take a peek inside of a young man's brain. Uh, and hopefully people will see their own brains, their own minds, the awkwardness that we pretend like doesn't exist. Uh, so there's that. And then For Everyone is a, a book that I'm kind of cringy about because I would have never published it. It was something that was never supposed to be published. Um, <clears throat> but here it is. I wrote it when I was young, so I was 24. So for me to read that is like, ooh, you know, it's like <laughs> juvenile almost, right, for me. Uh, but I was 24, and I had gone through some tough stuff, and I quit writing. I had been in the industry for three years at that time, by that point, and I quit writing and uh, wrote a letter to myself to sort of lick my wounds. And over the course of three years, that letter sort of transformed into uh, almost like a manifesto of sorts, right? Like, all right. Took some lumps, but isn't it a beautiful thing to like shoot your shot, right? Like perhaps, perhaps the fruition of said dream isn't necessarily the point. It's the freedom to have a dream, right? Like to look at the horizon is a beautiful thing, but if you were to swim out to it, you realize it's not there. But to see it from afar is where the beauty is, right? It's like, and so I talk to kids, and I'm like, "What you want to do? What's your dream?" And no one knows what they want. No one knows what their dream is. Not what you want to do, but who you want to be. And it's like that is the freedom, though. The freedom to just dream, whether it comes true or not, right? The beauty and that freedom to like Im- to imagine yourself as something other than yourself 
or in a different place. Like there's something about that that we don't put enough emphasis on. And that's what that's about. It's not an, I don't have any answers. It's not a self-help book. It's nothing like that. It's a companion for people out here who want anything. That there are moments where things get dark. You can open that book and remember that it ain't just you. And that I don't have the answer either. <laughs> None of us have the answer, but we're all in this thing. And that's what this book is about. Uh, so hopefully people will like it. I wish it didn't exist, but I'm, it's here. Um, it's here. I read it at the, the only time it's ever been heard aloud is at the unveiling of the Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center and at the memorial service of the great Walter Dean Myers. And oh, wow. So now everybody, and I want it to be a keepsake. I think we should get back to sort of having books as, as keepsakes, books as heirlooms. Mm-hmm. So in the opening flap of that book, you see two from, two from, two from, because it is to be passed and passed and passed and passed uh, and right. shared with people. So. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I really liked a few of the lines, particularly like the one about everyone having road rage. Yeah, everyone <laughs> has road rage. You know, all of us are, all of us are, are angry and, and trying to get to where we want to get to as fast as we want to get there and pissed off about anybody who's in our way. Everybody. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, uh, your Miles Morales book. Yeah. Are you a big comics fan, or was did this come to you as kind of a just a side project? It was a, it was a side project. I'm not a big comics fan. I am now. I mean, I'm more of a comics fan now because I've I've had to be. But I, it's interesting because comics are back in the day when I was growing up, comics were like counterculture. It was like nerd culture. Mm-hmm. Now comics are pop culture. The truth is, though, is that if we were honest about my generation, which is our generation, comics were also pop culture back then. Uh, you just, right? Like, they really were. Who doesn't know who Spider-Man is? Or Batman or Superman or Wolverine or the X-Men? Mm-hmm. No matter who you are, we all knew who they were. We, they were a part of our lives. They were mm-hmm. woven into the fabrics of, 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 of our upbringings, right? And our culture as a whole in this country. And so, like, was I a comic sort of, like, fanatic? No. But was I familiar with 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 Spider-Man? Of course. I knew all about Spider-Man. Of course I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they asked me to do it... Uh, and then they said that he was Miles Morales' character, which is half black, half Puerto Rican, which for me, of course, is always a, it was like the bait. It was like, oh, by the way, right? And I was like, of course. You know, I, I mean, listen, everybody who knows me knows I'm unashamed and unafraid and abashedly uh, in love with the culture from whence I've come. Uh, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my, my heritage, right? And so any opportunity to add a little paint where it ain't, I'm with it. I also just think we should probably start creating some new superheroes. You know, it's almost like, I almost feel like, you know, the X-Men and, and Marvel and everybody has hit a strange wall where they're just sort of revamping that which existed instead of trying to innovate mm-hmm. sort of new characters with new superpowers who can do new things. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, and I'd be game for that, right? Mm-hmm. If they were like, yeah, we want you to make a new hero with yeah. a new thing. I'd be game for that. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately... I think just because Marvel and DC have been so, you know, they're so prevalent and those characters are so, just like those are the, the superheroes that everyone knows. Yeah. I think they are, those companies are going to be the ones that have to make the new ones that yes. really stick. Yeah. Um, I'm so, I'm a huge comics nerd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I was like, I can no. ask Did you read that? Did you read the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you do it? I yeah. love that uh, writing that book. And I, was, and I have to shout out Marvel for being... Um, courageous uh, because they really let me do what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and they even was like we can tell you're tiptoeing so you can go ahead and do your thing like and so I had to I had to take my hat off because I was nervous that they wouldn't let me you know I told a pretty heavy story mm-hmm. uh, and I was I was happy that they let me 
so that she can move, which is cool. You dedicated a long way down to um, the the kids that you visited in detention centers. Yeah, that's something that you that oh, you do regularly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love I love going to the juvies and to correctional facilities because I think that there are young people. I think that everyone here should know that there are children in maximum security prisons all over America, yeah. serving hard time. Children, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 they are. It's almost as though they're invisible. That's why it's. That's why it's in miles. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote about it in there. And I think I, um, it's just near and dear to my heart that these kids, people should know that they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're children, and that they've made mistakes, and that they deserve um, time to grow. And, and we need to figure out how to how to fix the situation and rectify it instead of just slapping uh, cuffs on them and putting them in cages. So. In my campus, the one read this past year was Just Mercy, mm-hmm. um, and so there have been a lot. There's been a lot of, at least in my immediate sphere, there's been a lot of talk about it and yeah. a lot of like realizations about it. And yeah. I think I just, you know, I mean, I just hope it keeps going. Kate, you know, jail prison is no place for for, for a child. It's no place for any human being, um, but especially not a child. So shout out to them. But that's dedicated to them. Is there anything else that's coming up that you want to talk about? Just that the last uh, book in the track series comes out in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Lou. Lou comes out in the fall. I'm, that's what I'm work, finishing up, trying to finish up right now. Uh, so that'll be out. And then I have some special projects that I can't talk about yet. But So we've been talking with the wonderful Jason Reynolds um, at the DeKalb County Public Library Decatur Branch. Thank you so much, Jason. Peace Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.